This is Jack Foley. Today's show deals with, quote, Jack Foley's unmanageable masterpiece, unquote. That's a new book published by Monongahela Books and edited by Dana Joya and Peter Whitfield. I had nothing to do with this book, though I knew it was coming. The book deals with my book, Visions and Affiliations, California Poetry from 1940 to 2005. That was a book I published with Pantograph Press in 2011. The Joya Whitfield book has this to say about visions and affiliations. Quote, in 2011, a tiny press in Berkeley published Visions and Affiliations, an eccentric 1,300-page chronology of post-war California literature in two massive paper-bound folio volumes. With no commercial distribution or publicity, the book sold about 200 copies and soon vanished from sight, but not from the memory of the small audience that read it. Some of them considered the elaborate timeline the first adequate account of California's complex and contradictory literary life. Others recognized Foley's radical innovation in changing how literary history could be written. A few even considered these strange and sprawling, yet compulsively readable tomes an oddball masterpiece. I wrote, in response, my unmanageable masterpiece. Begins with a quotation from one of the editors, Peter Whitfield. He wrote, it's not a conventional work of history or criticism. It's a gathering of spirits. It was the opinion of the great Spanish playwright Pedro Calderón de la Barca that life is a dream. If life is a dream, what is a book? I have recently been considering a book that has my photo on the cover though I had nothing to do with its production. It's called Jack Foley's Unmanageable Masterpiece, and it was written and edited by Dana Joya and Peter Whitfield. It deals with my book, Visions and Affiliations, California Poetry from 1940 to 2005. I think of Gertrude Stein's remark, I master pieces of it. I don't think I ever found the book unmanageable. It's a strange feeling to be the subject of a book. My books have been reviewed in the past. I'm used to that. But this book is something different from that. It is extraordinarily literate propaganda for a book I have written. Was what I wrote eccentric? Was it in any way a masterpiece, even an oddball one? The book discusses myself, my person. Dana Joya believes me to be a beat poet. I have and have had friends who definitely were beat poets, Philip Lamentia, Michael McClure among them. But I never thought of myself as part of that most noble, occasionally disreputable company. 
Scott Timberg describes me in the following way. There was something otherworldly about him. He seemed like a medieval monk and a jazz-loving beat-era hedonist at the same time. Is that an accurate description of me? Otherworldly, medieval monk? Was my old Catholicism showing? Further, do beat poets even exist anymore? Or were they a reaction to a particular historical moment which has more than seen its day? Is the fascination with the beat generation part of a tendency of our culture to replace history with nostalgia? I sometimes think that the term beat has become a kind of advertising slogan, a selling point, almost a brand name by which certain poets or publishing houses can hawk their wares. Towards the end of his career, Kerouac himself rejected the term, which he felt had gone far beyond anything he had wished it to mean. Indeed, Apart from Allen Ginsberg and Michael McClure, I don't believe any authenticated beat writer ever actually agreed that he was beat. In any case, finding myself as a sort of character in a book is a new experience for me. It's a little like overhearing someone talking about you behind your back. In saying all this, I don't mean to suggest that I am ungrateful for what was obviously a labor of love and a labor of scholarship on the part of these wonderful people. I am deeply grateful. But I have a sense of being slightly posthumous throughout this extraordinary book. What is being said about me seems a bit like what is said about rock stars when they are about 25 or about ordinary people after they have passed away. I feel a little as though I am present at my own funeral service. And yet, what an extraordinary thing to have happened to you at the age of 79. Copies of the book actually arrived on my birthday. It's as if my entire life is being validated and not in a sentimental, mushy way, but in a way that is extraordinarily intellectually respectable. These are intelligent essays. This is praise that often carries with it deep understanding. Did I do all that? Maybe. I can't help but think of D.H. Lawrence's famous line, not I, not I, but the wind that blows through me. Thank you to all the people involved in the book. Grand merci. It's such a short time, wrote George M. Cohan, from lights on to lights out. Scott Timberg. I first met Jack Foley and his late wife Adele at a 2003 Beat Generation conference in Davis. Foley's seriousness was as clear as his eccentricity and he fit into this merry band quite well as we wandered around this sunny California college town attending discussions and performances. There was something otherworldly about him. He seemed like a medieval monk 
and a jazz-loving beat-era hedonist at the same time. Dana Joya Jack Foley has been such an active figure in California letters over the past 40 years that it would seem impossible to make sense of West Coast poetry without reference to him. Yet most critics do exactly that. Foley has published on the margins of official literary life. Conventional critics don't know his work. Time will correct the oversight, but there is no harm in speeding up the process by offering a few observations on his prolific career. There are singular aspects of his work that deserve attention, especially his experimental poetry, written for and performed by multiple voices. But poetic innovation is what one expects from a Bay Area beat. What astonishes the reader is Foley's critical prose. No one expects a beat poet to write a major work of literary history or to develop a radically new and revelatory approach to the genre. California literary history has mostly been the history of cultural simplification. No one knows what to do with the complex and contradictory writing the state has produced. It doesn't fit pre-existing patterns. It will seem supremely odd to any academic that Jack Foley, an Oakland poet without any institutional support or university connection, has written the most comprehensive history of post-war California poetry, a study that not only surveys the lives and work of hundreds of literary figures, but also cogently addresses the contradictory impulses in the state's creative psyche. Moreover, Foley has fashioned his chronicle in an innovative way that is both engaging and unabashedly experimental. Let there be no doubt, visions and affiliations shouldn't work. The wonder is that these unwieldy folios are compulsively readable, intellectually provocative, and weirdly entertaining. One simultaneously enjoys the sense of encountering an experimental work of cultural history and a highbrow gossip column. Visions and affiliations represent something new and useful in literary history, not just for the study of California literature, but also for chronicling the complexity of all forms of culture. There has never been a better book published about California poetry. There has certainly never been an odder one. The oddity and excellence of Foley's post-war chronicle are not unrelated. He revises the genre of literary history in unexpected and idiosyncratic ways. In Visions and Affiliations, Foley is not so much the author as the master of ceremonies who introduces and annotates a vast series of writers and events. About half the book is quotations, so the poets speak directly to the reader. Foley's commentary is mostly factual. He sets a neutral tone, perhaps to avoid evaluating the copious material he presents. He rarely explains anything 
He lets the reader decide on the meaning of each entry. Of course, Foley chooses what gets recorded and quoted, as well as determines where each entry is placed in the annual sequence, so there is always a covert authorial presence. His influence is more powerful for being understated. As the years accumulate, Foley's inexorable timeline generates narrative momentum. Individual careers unfold, movements emerge, flourish briefly, and vanish. Radical ideas develop practical consequences. The book provides a basic pleasure of nonfiction seldom present in literary criticism, namely the experience of watching what actually happened. That forward momentum is slowed or accelerated by the entries themselves, especially the longer ones, which quote extensively from the writers described. A polyphonic narrative emerges in the juxtapositions of each entry with the others around it. The reader frequently wonders at the contradictory things happening at the same time in the same place. Foley's pointillist organization puts more pressure on the reader than would a standard academic history. His method compels the audience to ponder the myriad unstated connections. No two readers will react to the book in the same way. That dynamic quality is the book's great virtue. Each time I went back, I noticed new connections. This experience is rare in current criticism, which habitually over-explains its subjects, and it makes Foley's timeline exciting. Visions and affiliations is not only big enough for both the reader and the author, it is sufficiently commodious for everyone likely to come along in the next 50 years. This is how innovative and experimental writing is supposed to work, how rarely it actually does, how energizing when it succeeds. In Visions and Affiliations, Foley gets at the basic truth about literary California, namely that this state is weirder, wilder, and more various than any sensible history can portray. Foley doesn't try to reconcile the contradictions. He presents them as part of the cultural record. He revels in the glorious chaos, and year by year, entry by entry, his lists persuade us to accept it as well. Reading this Brobdenagian enterprise, I felt for the first time I had found a book true to my own dizzy experience of California's creative welter. That was Dana Joya. This is the other editor of the book, Peter Whitfield, who is a British writer, poet, historian. 
Whitfield is dealing with what he calls Jack Foley's Magisterial Survey of Modern Poets and Poetry in California. He writes, If the reading and study of poetry has a future, then in the years and even the centuries to come, I believe that these volumes will remain a fundamental source for anyone thinking and writing about poetry in the 20th century, not only in California, but in America as a whole, and even in world terms. It is a local study that has resonances which spread far beyond California and America too, showing how poetry may relate to far-reaching changes in social and cultural life. And it shows how terribly wrong the idea is that poetry no longer matters in the modern world. This is a two-volume work running to well over 1,200 pages. But it is not an academic history, not shaped into a synthetic or critical narrative. If it were, it would surely be an exhausting read. Instead, Foley calls it a timeline, a year-by-year -year survey of books, authors, and events which takes us directly into the poetry scene and into the surrounding society. It builds into a panoramic picture of a literary community. Personally, I have never seen anything like this before, and I found it immensely enjoyable to dive into this river. I was constantly penciling notes in the margins to look up more information on the many writers I had never heard of. By 2010, Foley had lived in the Bay Area for more than 40 years and had been deeply involved in the poetry scene as a writer himself, as an editor, as an event coordinator, and as a radio broadcaster with KPFA. He got to know everybody, apparently. He read every book, apparently. And he knew everything. Apparently, he was clearly the ideal man to undertake this unique, new-style chronicle of modern poetry, and he is to be saluted for carrying it through magnificently. Whether you agree with everything he says doesn't matter. Whether you admire all the writers he admires doesn't matter. All that matters is that he has created this vital record of an era in poetry history. He has given us his portraits of the leading figures who made it happen and has shared with us his vision of what it all meant. And I believe he has done all this with immense fidelity to his sources. He has let them speak for themselves. What would happen in California was the emergence of poetry as a transforming social force a force for liberation from the stupefied, gray, conformist materialism of Eisenhower's America. Great sections of the population formerly without voices would find their voice and make themselves heard. The young, the women, the black, the homosexual, the pacifist, the Asian, the Native American, the disinherited, 
and the rebellious. Poetry played a major role in defining the identities of these groups. It became an act of resistance to a world people were no longer willing to accept passively. These were not the big name artists or the distinguished men of letters of New York. They were amateurs, changing their lives, moving back into a new innocence of being. Visions and Affiliations is not so much a book as an epic experience, a journey through the best part of a century when poetry acted as an intellectual and social force in the life of California. Having spent several months with these volumes, I haven't finished with them yet, nor have they finished with me. There are so many people and ideas in it that I would want to discuss, but this essay may already be the longest book review of the year, so I'll let one extract stand for all that missing material. James Broughton, avant-garde filmmaker and poet, is a continuing presence here. And just two years before his death, he spoke in characteristic style to Foley about his ideas and his guiding principles. Quote, you must take care of your inner child all your life. That's the one to raise. Never mind your own children. They'll have to fend for themselves anyway. I think the way to happiness is to go into the darkness of yourself. That's the place the seed is nourished, takes its roots and grows up and becomes ultimately the plant and the flower. You can only go upward by first going downward. I've never been afraid of losing my beautiful neurosis as a source of my poetry." Unquote. These volumes are filled with the spirit of hundreds of talented, brilliant, and outstanding figures like this, some successful, some obscure and defeated, who gave themselves to the search for poetic truth. For me, that journey has been an inspiration, and Jack Foley has been the ideal guide. He has been like Virgil, guiding Dante into the unknown, but with this crucial difference, that Foley, having led me through a great deal of suffering and heartache in hell and purgatory, doesn't turn back on the threshold of heaven, as Virgil did. Instead, having opened my eyes to part of the great panorama of American literature, he permits me to see some of the great stars and the lesser who are gathered up there in the celestial court of sweet, wild spirits where the poets reign. It's a tremendous work of scholarship and love. And I can only say, if you care about poetry, get it, read it, live with it, but don't lend it out to your friends, because if you do, you'll probably never see it again. 
Lucille Lang Day. Visions and Affiliations contains a multiplicity of voices. It is a democratic, unbiased book in which Foley does not take a stand for any particular school of poetry, whether the beats, the language poets, the objectivists, the projectivists, the surrealists, the activists, or the new formalists. Instead, he lets them emerge and coexist, just as they did in real life in California in the 20th and early 21st centuries. Visions and Affiliations chronicles the milestones and gives sample poems from all of these schools, as well as from individual poets who were never affiliated with any movement. I don't know if anyone except Jack Foley would include lines that come from such different muses as these in the same book. Quote, stars in the dark, they're one moral in the breeze. From the Little Pin, Fragment by George Oppen, and Outside the sea was gray and dull as tin. It ruled the shore with tedious discipline. From Nemos Campos Mentis by Leslie Mansour. There are other essays included in Jack Foley's Unmanageable Masterpiece. Obviously not a name I would have chosen. But I want to end with something I wrote about visions and affiliations, which has been included in the book. I received a phone call from the late Kevin Starr, whom I didn't know, though I knew that he was the state librarian of California and a highly respected historian. This is Kevin Starr's ecstatic response left on my phone machine and here transcribed. Quote, I'm just sitting here overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the achievement of the two-volume visions and affiliations. Absolutely overwhelmed by it. Absolutely overwhelmed. This is an extraordinary piece of work. Extraordinary. There should be a major, major review of this. But before that happens, I want to talk to you. Please phone me. Congratulations. What an achievement. What an achievement. Others have responded in that ecstatic way. I think what is happening is this. Most, pretty much all books, have an authorial presence of which we are aware. We know that there is someone speaking to us, making commentaries, organizing things. In this book, the authorial presence is minimized, almost not there. Jack Foley says things, but he is one character among many characters who say things. Instead, there are many, many entries, many voices, many relating to one another, sometimes echoing one another. But there is no single person obviously organizing all that. The reader is left far more on his or her own. There are many, many patterns to be found. I quote Michel Foucault in a note on this book. Quote, I mean the disorder in which a large number of possible orders glitter separately. Unquote. I think that's a pretty good description of the book. There is no one order which covers everything, tells you what everything means, but there are many, many possible orders manifesting throughout. Some of these are made explicit in the index. 
A reader like Starr notices these patterns and lacking an authorial presence begins to put them together for him or her self. What he or she discovers is his or her own capacity for ordering material, which is to say, his or her mind. I think it's this discovery that brought Starr to his sense of ecstasy. He is crediting me, but it is his own mind that is overwhelming.